Welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical insights and expert know-how on trending legal issues. No legalese, just expertise. With your host, Renee Karibi-White. Hello and welcome to Thompson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical legal know-how that makes lawyers' lives easier. I'm your host, Renee Karibi-White, and today I'm joined by Joe Green. Joe is a senior legal editor specializing in startups with Practical Law. Hello, Joe. Hi, Renee. How are you? Good. I'm so glad you could join us today. I'm thrilled to be here. So today we're going to talk about how to avoid the top legal mistakes that startups typically make. But before we get started, I want to learn a little bit more about you. How did you end up at Practical Law? What's your background with startups? Sure. So I started my career at a law school at Simpson Thatcher in New York, uh, where I was a securities lawyer and uh, working on kind of high profile Wall Street type financial transactions. But uh, I did a lot of pro bono work working with startups while I was at Simpson Thatcher. And then a few years into my career, an opportunity came up to move over to Gunderson Detmer's New York office. Gunderson Detmer's a Silicon Valley-based law firm, had a growing New York presence as the New York startup scene was really taking off. And uh, that's where I spent the bulk of my career, working exclusively with tech startups, helping them raise venture capital money, basically cradle-to-grave services, all the way from incorporation, before incorporation, straight through IPOs, mergers, selling the company, or uh, winding them up if they didn't turn out like the founders had hoped. And now how does that work that you did there translate to what you do now at Practical Law? Well, basically, I take all of my experience in working with startups, and that forms the basis for the, the content that I create, the resources that I create for practical law. So I'm pretty much writing exclusively resources focused on practitioners who practice in the startup space, who are doing the things that I used to do, trying to explain how to do them, market practices, uh, and just the nuts and bolts of how to get these transactions done, what to expect, what to look out for. So that's what I do. So I was reading an article recently, and it said that something like 90% of startups fail. Now, presumably, it's not always due to legal reasons, but what we're going to talk about today is how to not make a legal reason one of those reasons for failure. (laughs) Yeah, if 90% of startups were failing for legal reasons, then those startups need to find new lawyers. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's usually has something to do with the market, the timing, uh, whether the product really fits, uh, has a market out there, whether the the team is able to execute on their vision. But there are a lot of legal issues that come up for startups, and a lot of them can can potentially put a company out of business. Others, even if a company is extremely successful, can be extremely painful Mm -hmm. when founders have to end up giving a lot of the gains that they were expecting uh, over to legal issues of one stripe or another. So to make sure that everyone is clear on what we're talking about when we're talking about these legal mistakes, how are we defining a startup? Are we talking about, you know, my uncle going and opening a bodega? Are we talking about only tech startups? What's the scope of the conversation we're going to have today? Yeah, so that's a really great question because the term startup is just, it's used constantly in the press and just in everyday speaking. And it's really important to distinguish when you're giving legal advice in particular, what type of company you're talking about, because the advice may differ dramatically depending on the type of company. So when I talk about startups, when I write about startups for practical law, what I'm really talking about are types of companies that would be attractive to potential venture capital investors. And that's usually a specific type of company. It's a company that is attacking a very large market, 
has plans to grow very quickly using invested capital as opposed to starting very small and then just kind of using the the money that they make in the business to reinvest. So they keep taking additional capital to try to scale the business up as quickly as possible. And then the goal of once you have all these outside investors who have put money into the company and grown to a sufficient size, the goal usually is to provide some kind of exit for those investors, whether that's an initial public offering where they sell, sell stock and the investors are able to get some liquidity, or they sell the company to a Google or a Facebook. That's usually the goal of these types of companies. And that's very distinct from your uncle opening a bodega <laughs> or, or really any other small business. So the way I like to think about it is there are startups, which you might say are tech startups. A lot of them have to do with technology because that's where these, these kind of highly scalable business models tend to show up. And small businesses, you may have a new small business, but I wouldn't call that a startup per se. So for shorthand purposes, we can say the kind of entity that would get invested on if it went on Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's uh, that's not bad. Although I think actually the Shark Tank investors are, are interested in even even wider ranges of types of businesses than traditional venture capitals might be. Okay. Yeah. So from a legal perspective, what is the biggest danger of that type of company we're talking about today? So, I mean, the way that these companies tend to get themselves in the most trouble is by not speaking to their lawyers early enough and not speaking to their lawyers frequently enough. You know, entrepreneurs have, I think Facebook's motto is move fast and break things. That's that's kind of the <laughs> mentality of a lot of entrepreneurs is that they're trying to innovate. They're trying to do something new. It's, you know, all encompassing. It takes up their entire lives and they don't a lot of times have the wherewithal to slow things down and think about all the risks that they're taking, because if they ever did, they probably wouldn't continue. These tend to be risk-taking individuals who, who undertake these types of ventures. So it sounds like there might be a propensity to not even have a lawyer early on. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of people, when they're start thinking about starting a business, they're still working somewhere else. They're doing this as a kind of, you know, a project on the side. They have no money to put up into doing it. They're just kind of, if they're an engineer or a coder, they're just hacking away at whatever they're working on. Or if it's a more kind of business person, they're coming up with their plans and talking to, you know, people, potential investors. But until they're really at a point where there's, you know, an investor who's willing to give them money and they need to figure out how to do that, a lot of times those people won't be uh, reaching out to attorneys. So what is the right point at which they should get that attorney? So it depends. I, you know, I think that you know, if you're still employed and you're just kind of working on something yourself, until you're ready to make a move or actually you know, launch something, kind of get something out there or raise money, you don't really necessarily need to speak to an attorney. Sometimes having just a consultation can be helpful because you can uh, you know, find out that a bunch of things that you were planning on doing you really shouldn't be doing or can't do. So good things can come from that. But usually when you're kind of ready to leave and try to go after something full time, that's a good time to think about incorporating, creating an entity, um, and then thinking about how you're going to finance the business. So that brings me to one of the areas that I know is a focus area in terms of creating the right structure. What are some of the things people should consider when they're determining what the right structure is for their business? Yeah, so this is another really good question because it also varies depending on the type of business. So we're talking about tech startups here. And you know, a lot of people, if they just go into any lawyer who you know, incorporates businesses and you know, general practitioner, so to speak, might hear, oh, well, you should have an LLC because a you know, limited liability company allows you to pass through your taxes. Uh, you don't have to pay corporate level tax and then personal tax on any distributions from the corporation. But if you go to a lawyer who specializes in working with startup companies, particularly ones that are looking to attract venture capital money, venture capital funds, for the most part, won't invest in 
pass-through entities because they have their own tax considerations with certain of their investors who can be harmed by having that income pass through uh, on their tax returns. And so it's a lot of times it's cheaper and easier just to start as a C-corporation. The forms are a little bit more straightforward and everybody's just a little bit more familiar with them. And so for tech startups, usually forming as a C-corporation is the right way to go from the start. And that's, if you go to lawyers who specialize in this, that's what they'll tell you. So by not actually getting the structure right, they could lose potential investors? It's not necessarily they'll lose the investors, it's that they'll have to incur some costs down the road. So if you start as an LLC, uh, because you went to a lawyer who told you that's what you should do, and then you have venture capitalists who are interested in you, there's a couple of different ways that you can fix that problem. The company can convert from an LLC to a C-corporation, uh, which costs some money and involves some legal gymnastics. And sometimes, depending on how well you've kept your books, it might be straightforward. And if you haven't, it might be a little bit more complicated, a little cleanup work to do, which there usually is for startups when they're early on. Another thing is that sometimes the investors would be willing to create what they call a blocker corporation. So they would basically create just their own C corporation to invest in, and then the investor's C corporation would invest in the startup LLC. But the issue with that is that, you know, they'd prefer to be just investing usually directly into the- Yeah, because it seems like that could cause some kind of additional- Concerns. Yeah, it's it's really more that they it's more work for them to do. It's kind of pushing the work off on the investors, something that they have to pay for that they'd rather the, the company just deal with, and it's going to be an issue for investors in the future. So for the most part, these companies, by the time that they raise their first venture capital round of investment, have become a C corporation. So better to start that way. That's usually the the advice. Now, if you're a bodega, or if you're a, <laughs> a service business, or you know any other kind of business where you may not be looking to get venture capital investment and the business is going to throw off a lot of cash that you might be able to take out of the business and use to live, then an LLC could be much more effective because you don't have to pay two layers of taxation. Now, can the structure decision also affect the relationship between the parties? Because a lot of startups I know are started between people who kind of trust each other, so they may not be as formal in the agreements. What kinds of things should they think about with respect to that? Yeah, and a lot of times that informality, you know, it has to do kind of with the startup culture a bit, you know, that, you know, we don't want to have to pay a lot of lawyers to come up with all kinds of fancy documents. We're friends, we're, we've been doing this for a long time together, you know, we trust each other, all of those types of things. A lot of times it also just happens that those are difficult conversations to have. How are we going to split the equity? What happens if one of us leaves? And that's where lawyers can really help a startup's founders not make a terrible decision very early on. Whenever there are multiple founders in a startup company. So it's easier to say the lawyer is making us have this conversation yeah. than to raise it yourself, have that difficult conversation yourself. It is. It is. I mean, ultimately, the founders need to have the conversation, but the lawyers can definitely play a role in making sure that they do have the conversation. And documenting things is a forcing function requiring them to actually have those difficult conversations about all of those different eventualities. Have you seen in your past practice uh, situations where there were breakups that were difficult and what happened with those? Like, Give us an example of one of those. The founder divorce. It happens all (laughs) the time. Um, It happens very, very frequently. Whenever there are multiple founders, uh, if there are more than two founders, the odds that at least one of them at some point is going to move on and do something else is very, very high. And so as a general rule, anytime there's more than one founder, I always advise companies to put some kind of vesting in place on the founder's stock. Basically what that does is that you have all of your stock on day one, 
but the company has a right to repurchase it if you ever leave the company. And so what that does is, and this is just simple time-based vesting. There's no milestones involved or other you know, targets that you have to hit or responsibilities you have to meet, just the passage of time. So you know, let's say over the next four years, I'm going to kind of earn my stock on a monthly basis in equal increments. And so as long so as I'm sticking around- So they're not all the capital at once and potentially endangering the company? Yeah, it's, it actually has nothing to do with the capital. It's just about the, the stock. Okay. Um, so you know, their ownership percentage of the company. Mm-hmm. And so if they- if they do something where they the other founders decide it's time for you to go, or they just decide I'm not quitting my job, or you know I have another great opportunity, or my family is sick and I can't you know do this anymore. If you have two founders that split the company 50-50, and one of them walks away with 50% of the company, the other founder is left with the choice of shutting the company down, or continuing to work for only 50%, but doing 100% of the work. That's a terrible situation. And so having that vesting provisions in place can really save founders a lot of heartache. You know, it's in there on day one. Everybody knows the deal. And if you leave or you end up not performing, that's what happens. You walk away with less of the company and then the rest kind of reverts to the the people who are still there doing all the work. In addition to vesting, what are some of the other documents or considerations that business partners should enter into to prepare for the potential dissolution of the company? So the time-based vesting, actually, for most companies, it's helpful to have that just serve as a proxy for all of the things that you can imagine that might go wrong that you could if you wanted to. I mean, we're talking about contracts here. You could legislate all of those things. You could think of every horrible thing that could possibly happen and, and come up with a response to each of those things that you all agree to beforehand. The problem with doing that is that it's incredibly costly. You're never going to think of everything that might eventually happen. And so most companies are best served just by having time-based vesting and leaving it there. That said, it is really helpful for lawyers to make sure that the founders of their companies do have difficult conversations early on about what kinds of roles, what kinds of responsibilities each of them is going to have, what happens if they don't meet those responsibilities, uh, so that at least everybody's going in on the same page. The splits in equity is also a very big part of that conversation when you're talking about what kinds of roles and what kinds of responsibilities each founder is going to have, how much equity is associated with that. Do you just do an equal split among all of the founders, regardless of what they're doing, with the understanding that maybe their operational responsibilities are going to shift from time to time? Or do you uh, have those conversations early where you decide, well, I'm going to be doing X, Y, and Z, so I should have 60% and you should have 40%. Those are really important conversations to have. And having people take the easy way out and having founders who don't have those conversations early on can be a major cause of companies failing or just having terrible, painful divorces that they eventually get through, but that really can drain uh, a lot out of a company. So another early consideration revolves around the naming of the company. What are some of the dangers there? So you'll notice that most startups that you see nowadays have made up words, usually ending in an L-Y. Or, <laughs> um, yeah, the reason for that is that it's hard these days to find a company name or a brand that's going to be clear and also not something that somebody else is already using in the technology space. So trademark law is really what comes into play here. And you know, a lot of times a company will come up with a name uh, and they think that if they can get a domain name for it, then... It's theirs, and that's that's all they need to worry about. But other companies may be having trademarks on things that are very similar or could cause confusion in the marketplace. And if that's the case, you may spend a lot of time 
coming up with ideas and marketing campaigns and start, you know, going out to the market with this name only to get a letter from a big company saying, hey, you're infringing on our trademark and you need to stop. So while we're on IP generally in terms of company names, is there a specific IP strategy that you used to recommend to the companies that you worked with? Yeah. So, you know, for most software startups, you know, I typically wouldn't recommend getting software patents. It's not something that those companies typically do. For hard tech companies, I would usually refer them to a patent attorney, which I am not. Get them a specialist who can make sure that they go through that process and, and are able to secure patents because for hard technology, hardware, things like that, it's very important. But generally speaking for startups, it's very important to make sure that whatever intellectual property you've created is owned by the company. Uh, that's incredibly crucial. Every investor that looks at that company, every acquirer that looks at that company, it's the first thing that they're going to do is make sure that all of the intellectual property is owned by the company. A lot of founders start working on their products or their concepts, their businesses before they incorporate. It's very important that the investors who invest in the corporation are sure that the intellectual property that was created beforehand is actually owned by the corporation. So you're saying by the corporation instead of the individual who is starting the corporation. That's right. You're making so, that distinction. Right. Okay. So if the founder started working on it before the corporation was created, there needs to be some kind of assignment of all that intellectual property. Usually and it has an to be exchange a paper trail and a for paper that. trail exactly. Mm -hmm. And usually the, it's an exchange for the stock that they're getting in that company. But making sure that that's there is very important. Also making sure that all the engineers that work for the company, all the people who are creating intellectual property have signed proper employment agreements and inventions assignments, incredibly important. So that brings us a little bit more toward the employees. Let's say a startup has gotten some funding, the founders are making a little bit of money and they need to hire a team now to help them actually push the business forward. At what point should they be really concerned about various labor laws? Right away, unfortunately. A lot of companies think that they can get around that by if they only hire a few people and they hire them you know, part-time or that they can call them independent contractors and not have to withhold taxes for them and not have to comply with labor laws and pay unemployment insurance and all of those various things that big employers have to do. But that's actually not the case. Even if someone's working part-time, if they're only working for you, if they're not a true independent contractor, someone who has their own entity, let's say, and, and goes around providing services to a whole bunch of different companies and controls the way that they work and take assignments kind of as they decide, if it's not that situation, if it actually is more like an employee who just isn't working a full-time job, they're still an employee. And so even from that very first employee, you need to set up with the you know payroll, need to set up to do tax withholding. All of those things start from the very beginning, paying minimum wage over time. So it's, it, founders don't want to believe it <laughs> because <laughs> it's a lot, of, you know, it can be a lot of work. There are a lot of firms out there now, a lot of companies that actually take care of this for early stage companies, basically from beginning to end, they call them PEOs. And that's basically what most of these founders will end up doing is they'll, they'll get those folks to take care of the vast majority of the things. Those companies don't take care of everything for them. It does, it's not like they've now outsourced having to think at all about dealing with employees. They should still make sure that they're talking to their lawyers and complying with the various things that they need to comply with. But in terms of the withholding and taxes and all that kind of stuff, PEOs can be really helpful. So have you seen any companies in the past have people who are technically employees, but they give them a little bit of equity and say, okay, now you're a partner and I don't have to comply with those laws? Yeah, so that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> all of these tech companies usually provide some form of equity compensation. In lieu of kind of hourly wages. No, yeah, that doesn't, okay. that doesn't work. Um, 
but uh, but the vast majority of startup employees do get some form of equity, uh, either stock options or if it's company still really early stage, they might actually get stock. And that's that's a very big part of working for a startup, the whole idea of going to a startup that can't afford to pay you what you were making at your last job if you were at a big company. You know, that's where the equity comes in. It really comes in more because that's a form of compensation that they have, whereas cash is a form of compensation that they don't have. And so to pay market salaries to engineers who can command hundreds of thousands of dollars in some markets when they have no cash is not possible. So that's where you see a lot of equity compensation being used. And is equity compensation a risky area as well? It can be. It's an area where you really have to make sure that you're observing all the formalities uh, and complying with the laws, particularly tax laws. When you're granting stock options, this is particularly the case for startups once they've set a price on their stock, usually by taking some form of outside investment. So once you've done your first round of investment, uh, somebody's given you money, they've put a value on the company. That's how you determine how much to charge them and how much of the company they got to buy. The employees at that point, you're usually going to want to give them stock options because giving them stock, just giving it to them, would require them to then pay taxes on that stock. But they can't sell the stock at that point to pay the taxes, and usually they don't have the cash or don't want to come out of pocket to pay the taxes. So you give them a stock option. It's not taxable at the time that they receive it, but that stock option has to be granted at the fair market value of the stock on the date that it's granted. You can't grant an option at below the fair market value. They call that an in-the-money option. Public companies got into a lot of trouble back in the early 2000s for granting in-the-money options to their executives. And so now there are very punitive tax laws, particularly Section 409A of the tax code, that if you don't grant an option at fair market value, you could have major tax implications for doing that. And what happens if you violate that? If you violate that, there's a very large excise tax on top of interests and penalties, and yeah, it can be a really big problem. And even if even if the IRS doesn't come after you and you're not audited, which a lot of companies aren't these days, the IRS is stretched pretty thin, when a potential acquirer is looking at you, thinking about buying you, they're going to inherit all of your tax problems. And so they very often are the ones who are scrutinizing this most closely. And it can end up, they may say, well, fine, we'll buy all your tax problems, but it's going to be for $10 million less than we said we would at the outset. So when you tell founders that, they're much more likely to uh, think about (laughs) playing it safe on the stock option pricing front than if you just tell them, well, you might get audited. They're hoping to sell the company one day for a lot of money and the idea that that's somehow going to hurt them is usually something that they'll listen to. So speaking of money and selling the company, what are some of the risks inherent in raising capital? So it's just really important to know what you're getting into. You know, When you're raising capital from venture capitalists and professional investors, you have to understand why they're doing what they're doing and what their expectations are. You know, If you're a founder who wants to have a lifestyle job. You started this company so that you can, you know, have a great lifestyle and eventually the company will start throwing off enough money that you can hire somebody else to take over and travel around the globe and have the income coming off of that company. You don't want to take money from venture capitalists because venture capital funds are raised. They have a 10-year life where they invest in the first couple of years of that. The companies grow and then they want their money back. And they don't want their money back just you know, for someone to necessarily buy them out. They want that company to go public or to be bought at a large multiple of you know, whatever, whatever it might otherwise be worth. And so that's an important thing to know going into that. It's also important to know what are kind of the market conventions around you know, how venture capitalists interact. Not all investors are the same. You know, a lot of West Coast venture capital investors 
have more of a hands-off approach when it comes to how restrictive they are with the company and, and things that they need, uh, where the founders would need to go get the investor's approval to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I've heard there's like a West Coast version and an East Coast version. Can you provide a little more insight around how that came to be? Yeah, so there's less of that than there used to be, but venture capital really grew up on the West Coast. And I think a lot of West Coast investors eventually realized that they were betting on founders. These were largely, especially early stage investments, are largely lottery tickets. And so having a whole bunch of downside protections and a whole bunch of restrictions and shackles on the founders was counterproductive at that point. And that later investors who came on were only going to ask for more and more and more. And so for early stage investors, they end up looking a lot more like the founders at the end of the day than someone who's putting in $100 million in a Series F financing round. Um, and so I think a lot of West Coast investors realized that. And on the East Coast, the investors were much more from the financial world. They were private equity, hedge fund guys who were now investing in startups. And so I think that that they come to it with a different mindset of a different type of investing. There was also a lot more competition on the West Coast in the startup world, at least in the past. Now, uh, New York, Boston are pretty big VC centers. So, How did that difference change the advice that you as a lawyer gave to your clients? So, so much of the advice that you give is driven by the investors that the company has to work with. And what, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, even if the terms of a deal are really bad, if that's your only choice, it's between that and shuttering the company, I guess you're going to be taking that money or you, or you can move on and do something else. And so a lot of it's driven by the investors. In my experience, even in the time that I was practicing, by which point the East Coast terms had already converged quite a lot with West Coast terms uh, and become more founder friendly. In my experience at this point, while there were some investors who still expected much heavier terms, the pendulum had really swung so much. And this, this also has to do with the fact that we're in a bit of a bubble right now in, in the startup world where a lot of terms were becoming much more founder friendly. And so that has a lot to do with it. So one of the things that all companies have to deal with is liability of third parties, like in their supplier contracts, in their vendor relationships, any kind of business partners. Are there special risks inherent in those relationships for startups? Yeah, it's... I don't know that there's special risks. A lot of times startups end up having to take terms that larger companies wouldn't have to take because just of a total lack of leverage. They're trying to, when they're negotiating with large companies, they're very often having to take whatever those large companies are willing to give them in terms of the contracts that they enter into. But it's very helpful to have, even though those larger companies may be saying, you're going to use our form and we're not going to change it, having someone at least look out for the, you know really big issues that may end up you know coming into play can be really helpful. So when you're first starting out, having a lawyer help you kind of come up with a your own standard master agreements and and you know at least try to use those or at least try to get the larger company forms closer to those wherever you can around the margins can be really helpful. Let's say you have a friend or colleague who doesn't typically advise startups, and this is a lawyer friend. What three things would you tell them to focus on? If they're going to advise a startup? Yeah, they have a startup client. They haven't really dealt with startups. What three things would you tell them to look out for? Uh, I'd tell them to read a lot of practical law resources, actually, because, you know, it's funny. I've represented a lot of lawyers who become founders of startups. Hmm. Um, and so not just going to represent a startup, but they're going to try to do it themselves. And a lot of times they think that they'll all oh, do my own legal work and save costs because I'm a lawyer. And it's a particular world, the startup world. And, you know, just because you were a lawyer of one stripe or another, you know, I was a securities lawyer at Simpson Thatcher. 
there are a lot of very specific things about working with young companies and startup companies, particularly companies that are looking to raise venture capital money, that it really makes sense to get lawyers who have done it before. And if you haven't done it before, then you really need to find a trustworthy source to read about how this practice works, because it's not necessarily intuitive. And it's really something that if you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to ruin a company over it, most likely. But most likely, most likely. But <laughs> but you can you can be much more efficient if you are able to understand the market conventions of working with early stage startups. Okay, great. That's one. <laughs> that's, that's one. <laughs> and what are the two biggest danger areas that you would tell them to be on the lookout for? Yeah. So I would say one of the biggest danger areas is dealing with founders when they're first coming over and their previous employment relationships. So a lot of founders are leaving companies that, you know, especially technical founders leaving companies that they've been working for, non-competes, non-solicits, people who leave a company together. It's so easy for large companies just with the threat of a lawsuit to basically. Or they'll be seen as taking client lists, even if they have no agreement. Exactly. Um, Or even trade secret. Right. And so documenting all of those things and, and making sure, you know, when you get a startup in your door and they're working somewhere, the first thing I always ask for is all of their employment documentation to take a look at all, you know, go through all of it. And then I'll also ask them about their practices and make sure that they're not using their company's laptop or their company's computers or anything from their company. Don't use a stapler. Uh, <laughs> make sure that you've completely segregated to every extent possible your work on your startup from your work in your existing employer. Because those things really can come back to haunt you, where you end up having to settle with that company for 10% of the equity in your company. That kind of stuff does happen. So that's a big area. And then I would say the other area, and these aren't as much legal issues per se, but having founders have those difficult early conversations when you're setting up the business, making sure that everybody's going into things with their eyes open about what the expectations are, that the equity conversation, people have had that conversation. Those are the biggest things that I see a lawyer being able to tell people who are doing this for the first time, you really need to do this because not doing it, you know, can end the business eventually or make it so painful. You'll really wish that you had. Well, thank you, Joe. As we wrap up, I have one more question for you. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, best piece of advice. So, well, this is, this is a hyper practical one, but it's something that I always passed along because it actually did save me on many, many occasions. When I was a summer associate, I, I, one of the first things that I drafted, and I can't even remember what it was, but I, I handed it in and a senior associate called me to their office and showed me the black line that I had sent them and pointed to a few things in the black line that were just silly mistakes. And they were like, did you look at this black line before you sent it to me? And I said, no, I, I read the document. I read the Word version. I printed out a copy and I, I read through it but I guess I miss those. And you know, when you're a new lawyer, it's having that kind of attention to detail. It comes with time, but the number of times that I have now read a black line before sending out a document and found all kinds of either silly mistakes that are just embarrassing or substantive things that, you know, comments that I got in there that shouldn't have. It saved me on, I don't know how many different occasions. So I always pass that one along. So, Joe, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I'd like to thank you so much for helping us to frame some of the issues for consideration with respect to startup companies. Now, if people have questions, where should they go to get more information on any of the topics we discussed? Well, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there on the Internet with startup stuff, but it's really hard to know whether the people who are writing these various blog posts really know exactly what they're talking about, or they're just kind of talking from their limited experience with it. Practical Law has a startup company toolkit, 
which lists all of our resources on all of the things that might relate to startups. So that's a good first place to start looking for resources on any variety of topics that relate to startups. Okay, and that was Joe Green, Senior Legal Editor with Practical Law. And this has been another edition of Thompson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. I'm Renee Karibi-White, and until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both Thomson Reuters Practical Law and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Thomson Reuters, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.